Genetics is a powerful tool in the discovery of new knowledge. What specifically has genetic research taught us about inherited susceptibility to common cancers, and how will this knowledge be useful in the treatment and cure of cancer? Welcome to ReachMD Radio for a special program, Focus on Cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss inherited susceptibility to common cancers is Dr. William Fawkes, Associate Professor in the Departments of Human Genetics, Medicine, and Oncology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Dr. Fawkes, welcome to Reach MD. Well, it's very nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you, too. So what do we really know about the contributions of genetic factors to the causation of cancer? That's a very interesting question because, you know, I think when I started doing this, I think it was, you know, beginning to be clear that genetic factors were important, but we didn't really know the extent of it. I mean, it was more of an hypothesis than a reality. As I say, since that time, the last 15, 20 years, it's been, become apparent that a substantial proportion of, of, of cancer, and particularly some forms of cancer, some particular types of cancer, are strikingly hereditary. In other words, there are very clear genetic factors that contribute towards the etiology of these cancers. I think it's important, though, that we distinguish between the different types of genes because some of the genes are very, very rare but strong-acting. In those situations, you would see a family history of cancer so that, it, so that say, your mother had breast cancer at 35 and her sister had ovarian cancer at 40, it wouldn't take a geneticist to tell you there might be something going on there because those two cancers are occurring at very young ages and particularly if the, if the, woman's, if the person's grandmother also had say breast or ovarian cancer, you, you get a strong sense there would be a genetic factor. So are these genes of that type which are particularly important for breast, ovarian, colorectal and some other cancers which we know increasingly, we've known a lot about in the last 10 or 15 years because of these large families where there's obviously been a problem who came to the attention of doctors and scientists who were then able to use what's called linkage to actually find the genes that caused these diseases and were the major factors. So that was the first wave, if you like, of genetics. And that really went on between about 1990 and about 19, sort of 1995 towards 2000. Really all the major genes were found because of the ability to find these genes through new technology and so on. And then it became apparent that, you know, what about the rest? If this is a small proportion, I mean, not everybody has a very strong family history of cancer. What about the rest? So there's a big question over that, I think, for a long time. In just the last couple of years, it's become fairly clear that the genetic hereditary factors are probably important in almost all forms of cancer, but as yet the sort of distinct architecture of cancer it has not revealed itself fully. What we do know is that there are a large number of genes with a very, very small effect. When you add them up, that could contribute quite a lot towards cancer susceptibility for people who don't have a strong family history of cancer. You may only have one relative with cancer, you may have no relatives, but still your inherit, the inherited factors that you got from your parents are going to be contributing towards your risk. So these are different genes. These are much more weakly acting genes that probably are not ready to be used in the clinic yet. We can't yet use those individual tests to say, well, you have an increased or decreased risk because the effects are so small in or themselves. But they do tell us a lot about pathways and about new potential targets for, for treatment because some of these genes were completely unexpected to be cancer genes. Sometimes you can predict what gene might be involved in cancer, a gene that's expressed in breast tissue, for example, you might think, well, that's a good candidate for a breast cancer gene. But some of these genes really were not ever thought to be involved in cancer, and yet they are. And some of the genes are, have, no, in fact, no known functions. So a new era, I think, is, is evolving, whereby 
the architecture of cancer, if you like, the landscape of cancer is being revealed in, in far greater detail. It's a bit like you imagine you're flying over a, a country and you, you, you're flying at a higher level and you see in the distance, you see a town emerging, you just see the skyscrapers, you see the big buildings. As you get closer down to the ground, you start to see the detail and eventually you see the people walking on the street as you come into land. And so really in the past, we've been flying high from a distance and just seeing the big skyscrapers, the big details, the, the, as it were, the families with lots of cancer in them. As we get closer in with finer scale analysis, much more powerful genetic tools, much more powerful bioinformatic tools, we begin to realize that, in fact, perhaps the genetic component of cancer is increasingly evident, even in people for which the family history isn't relevant. I just don't want to say that it's all about genetics. Clearly, environment is a very, very major player. But I just think it's the ability of us to understand the genetic component that's really changed a lot in the last few years. So what are these genetic and bioinformatic tools that we're going to use in order to get farther down from the top of the skyscrapers? Well, that's a good question. We started out by using markers that were spaced along the chromosomes that were fairly far apart. So you can only get, like, as I say, like a skyscraper view of things. But now we're using markers, particularly these things called SNPs. They're SNPs, that it stands for. It's, it's single nucleotide polymorphisms. Essentially, these are like switches. They're on or off. And these, these markers are very, very frequent in the genome. There are millions of them. And so when you have that fine scale, you can see subtle differences between people, large numbers of people with and without cancer. So essentially, you started out before with one family and, say, 400 markers scattered throughout the genome, which is pretty low scale if you think how many genes there are. There's, you know, 30,000 genes and, and 3 billion base pairs. So, you know, 400 markers, they're not very closely spaced. Now you have maybe a million markers, and you have, instead of one family, you have 10,000 individuals, 10,000 cases, 10,000 controls, all, with, all the cases, say, have colon cancer, all the controls do not have colon cancer, and you have a million, as it were, uh, ch checking points. So you run the one against the other, and you get an awfully big Excel file. And when you, in fact, it's funny that, it, that in fact, Microsoft had to increase the size of their Excel files now to, 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 to handle such, such kind of data. It used to be limited to 100,000 lines of data. Now you need millions. So when, they, when you have this much data, you're able to really, in a, in a very fine, fine way, pick up very small signals. So that's what's happened. These tools that have been used have been the SNPs, the ability to run high-throughput tests, that is to do genotyping, that is checking, checking the actual genetic structure, very cheaply and very quickly. So you can get results literally in an afternoon, which used to take months before, now it could take an afternoon. It's still expensive, but it's certainly much quicker. And from that, you can find a very large number of genes. For example, two years ago, there were no real genes for prostate cancer. No, there weren't any genes you could honestly put your hands on your heart. Maybe there was one or two, but apart from very rare ones, you couldn't say there were any genes which we knew were responsible or could contribute towards prostate cancer. Now there's over 20, and that's just taken place in, in two years. So, you know, this isn't ready for prime time. This isn't ready for the clinic just yet, but I think it's around the corner. And as you probably know, there are companies out there in fact, offering direct-to-consumer -to testing for some of these uh, risk factors, not just cancer, but many things, based on this technology. And it's the marriage, really, of sort of the marriage in the sense of the information technology that you see on your computer with Microsoft and, 
and, and the internet with sort of novel bioinformatic techniques and synergy between those worlds, if you like, coming together, the new sort of genetics, the new world, which really wasn't apparent to us until just recently, that allowed these companies to spring up and offer these kinds of tests. So I think we will see this increasingly in the future, that people will be trying to interpret these results in the light of their, people, their people's own personal histories. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. With us is Dr. William Fawkes, Associate Professor in the Departments of Human Genetics, Medicine, and Oncology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. We're discussing inherited susceptibility to common cancers. So recently, a woman who had died of AML had her entire genome sequenced, the first person with that kind of disease to ever get that. And they found, I heard, 10 specific cancer genes that were mutated. What's the significance of this kind of work, and how do you see it accelerating in the future, and what might it do for us? Well, I think the remarkable point about this case you're discussing is that this wasn't just a survey of a couple of genes that we thought might be involved in cancer or people the, the people who did the work thought might be involved in cancer. This was a sort of an unbiased, hypothesis-free search of the entire genome of the person. So they deliberately chose this person because the tumor cells were not incredibly disordered. If they were very, very disordered, as most cancers are, there would have, it would have been almost impossible to sort out what was what. But they deliberately chose somebody who didn't have an obvious cause for their leukemia because many leukemias are caused by specific translocations. And so the, you know, that's the cause. You don't need to look much further. Like CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, there's a major translocation, which is the, the Philadelphia chromosome, which is the major cause of CML. So that you don't need to look very much further than that to find the cause. In this woman there was not much evidence as why she got the disease. So they chose this very particular person, very unique person perhaps, to, to answer a specific question. If we sequence the entire genome of this person and with no prior suppositions of what genes might be involved, with no prior clues, what would we find? And as you pointed out, they found 10 genes that not, were not previously thought to be linked to leukemia, which, which each contributed towards her unfortunate condition. Now, what was interesting, in a sense, was there weren't that many, but they were unpredicted, but also that these might offer some form of novel therapeutic targets for the future. And one of the dreams and hopes of this is not just that it will tell people about their risk, but it'll tell about their treatment. Because in the end, the problem, in a sense, with, with scientific um, advances, and this is true for all fields of medicine, is knowing isn't the same as doing. We know a lot about tuberculosis. It's still the biggest killer of people in the entire world. And it's been known since 1880 that it was a bacteria. So that knowledge has not prevented people from dying. So the question is, can we turn this knowledge to the advantage of patients? Not just in terms of, well, yes, you have high risk for this disease, but can you do something about it? Because quite honestly, I'm not sure any of us would like to be told, well, dear Mrs. X, we've seen you, we've sequenced your genome, and you have a 50% chance of leukemia, but there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, that would not be very helpful information. So I think the real opportunity from this kind of work in sequencing this person was to provide new information about the range of changes that could be present. And for this particular patient, this woman whose genome we sequenced, would you expect that all of her cancer cells looked identical to that? Did they all have that same gene sequence, or would you expect large variability even within this one patient and even within this one disease? 
they chose AML in this case, of course, they sequenced the tumor. They sequenced the tumor cells of this person, not the germline of this person. And of course, the reason, one of the reasons they chose AML is because it's a liquid tumor. So you, it's much easier to sequence tumor when you've actually got the cells themselves floating around in the bloodstream rather than having to take out the tumor and freeze it and prepare it and extract the DNA. So within that, they have more opportunity to see some differences and see some clones emerging. And certainly one would imagine that it would not be a completely clonal population of cells, that some of them might have some differences. But one would expect that some of the changes were really fairly early on in the pathogenesis of the disease and therefore would be seen in the vast majority of the cells, would be drivers, if you like, rather than just passengers. So what would be the clinical implication of that then? Is it likely if we were able to sequence somebody's disease genome that you said we might have targets, if we can find a chemotherapy or other therapy for that target, would we be likely to eradicate the cancer or would we end up with the same situation we have now where we give people drugs and their cancer recurs? The war on cancer, as it were, <laughs> has been around for a long time and tumors, don't forget, are subject to evolution just like everything else. So a tumor, uh, when faced with a threat, will, I don't want to be too anthropomorphic about it, but clearly the tumor will, will if you like, respond. There will be a response of, that, of those tumor cell lines to the threat of chemotherapy. And so clones that have a different, slightly different spectrum of mutations may well evade the treatment. So, you know, I don't want to be sort of be too sort of rosy tinted about this in terms of is this leading to new therapies tomorrow but I think it does seem to be the case that the greater the knowledge we're getting of the genome particularly the cancer genome it's very likely to throw up some new treatments that will be of help to some people I mean whether or not that's going to be you know in the next few years and whether or not you could honestly say patient comes into hospital with cancer take out tumor sequence genome provide targets that specific to that person give drug cure i mean that's a sort of a grant title type you know, text right that's the sort of thing people write about when they're dreaming i don't think anyone really feels that that's round the corner certainly not for the vast majority of people maybe if you had a very large amount of money and you were determined to be an early adopter, then perhaps you would be the person to do this. But the reality is, it's still pretty expensive. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars at the current time to sequence genomes. The cost is coming down enormously. And at the $1,000 genome, as they talk about, is probably not that far away. So, you know, I think it's coming and it's very hard to predict the future. But I am optimistic that new targets will be found. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. William Fawkes. We've been discussing inherited susceptibility to common cancers. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to a special program, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD Radio, a channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. <laughs>